0: Good morning, and welcome to Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Erica.
1: And I'm Abby. Today, we're going to tell you about the infamous and unsolved Veliska Axe murders.
0: So pour yourself a strong cup of joe and let's dive in.
1: We would like to give a brief warning before jumping into this episode, as it deals with violent acts against young children. We will not be going into extreme detail outside what is necessary to tell the story. We would advise listener caution for this episode. Felisca, Iowa is a town that sits in Montgomery County in southwest Iowa. In 1912, Felisca consisted of about 2,500 residents. This was a fair size for a Midwestern town at this time. It was a pretty active city with a high number of local businesses and a lot of movement. They had trains in and out of the city constantly each day. The town was a very close-knit community, like a lot of Midwestern towns were at this time. Erica, I think we can both relate to that growing up in a pretty small farming community.
0: Yeah, so in the small town that we grew up in, everyone knew everyone and was pretty much in everyone's business.
1: Yeah, and that's going to be kind of a common theme amongst this story, as we'll come to find out. In 1912, Josiah Moore was 43 years old and Sarah Montgomery, 39 years old. They were living in a house in Villisca at the time, and they had four children, Herman, who was 11, Mary Catherine, who was 10. Arthur, who was referred to as Boyd a lot. So I may say Boyd at some point during this. Just know I'm talking about Arthur. He was seven years old. And then finally, Paul, who was five years old. Josiah was a pretty prominent businessman. He owned a farm equipment store within Villisca. He also had a farm. I think that made for a lot of connections within the community. I know that a lot of times farmers kind of have a community within their own community.
0: Yeah, around here... You can say a last name and pretty much anybody is going to know them because they have a farm somewhere around town.
1: Oh, yeah. In the Midwest, that's definitely common. So Mary Catherine had two other pretty close friends. Ina, who was eight years old, and Lena, who was 12 years old. Their last name was Stillinger and they were sisters. They frequented the Mora household a lot. They were really close with Mary Catherine, and they stayed at each other's houses all the time, as a lot of young kids do. You know, you grow up with those friends, and you're always together, and that was the case with these three girls.
0: Yeah, at your friend's house more often than you're at your own. Oh, yeah. So on June 9th,
1: 1912, the Moores and the Stillingers both attended an early morning service at their local church. Lena and Ina had planned to go to their grandmother's house after their service and hang out there until nighttime when they're going to have their annual Children's Day program at the church, which was actually hosted by Sarah Moore. However, after the morning service, Mary Catherine invited the Sillinger girls to come stay at her house. So Josiah Moore called the Sillingers to make sure it was okay for the girls to come over and hang out after the service until the children's program and to go ahead and stay the night After the program, the Stillinger girl's older sister, Blanche, and I apologize if I did not pronounce that correctly, answered the phone and told Josiah that her parents were outside working, but she would let them know. From what I gathered, that was normal. And from my experiences, at least, I don't feel like that would be that big of a deal that Josiah didn't get confirmation from the parents.
0: Yeah, I had a couple really close friends when I was younger. And if I was staying the night at their house randomly, we could just let my parents know, and we didn't really need confirmation.
1: Yeah, and as I said earlier, the families were close; They'd stayed the night before, so it just really wasn't that big of a deal. So around 7.45, all the children, including the Stillinger girls, Josiah and Sarah, headed off to attend the children's program at the church, which began at 8 o'clock. They were walking there because it was only a couple blocks away from their home. So the event ended around 9.30, or an hour and a half later, And at some point in the night, the family heads off to bed with Josiah and Sarah sleeping in their upstairs bedroom. And then the four kids also shared a bedroom upstairs. And the 2 Stillinger girls were going to sleep in the spare bedroom downstairs, which was adjacent to the parlor, which is basically like a foyer. The following morning, Mary Peckham, who was Lamorza's next-door neighbor, woke up around 5 a.m. to go outside and hang some of her laundry up. As she's going on with her morning chores, she begins to notice that nobody from the Moore family have been outside yet. She doesn't see any movement in the house, and this is very odd. They, each morning, very early, got up to attend to their animals. Kids were always up kind of early outside playing, and she just wasn't seeing them, and it was making her a little concerned.
0: Which makes sense. I mean, it's a small town and the neighbors next to you will probably know what your everyday routine is. And so if you're not sticking to that routine, there might be some sort of concern.
1: Yeah, especially when you're living on a farm and there's animals that need to be fed and let out. And I think she was concerned for them, but also maybe just was like, oh, this stuff needs to get done. So she's kind of nervous, but continues on with her routine. But by 7am, when the Moors still have not gotten up, come outside, or shown any sign of movement. Mary starts to get concerned. This is super unusual, and she she's nervous. Something has to be wrong. So she walks over to the house, and she peers around. She's trying to see if she can see any movement in the house or hear anything that would suggest that the Moors are awake and just for whatever reason haven't gone outside yet she doesn't see or hear anything. So she decides to knock on the door. And she's like, maybe they had a late night, maybe they're just not awake yet. After knocking, she waits for a few minutes and nothing's happening. So at this point, she's nervous. So she's decided that she's going to try to go inside and see if something's wrong. But the door was locked, which is really unusual, I guess in this town. And because of the community they were in, they never locked their doors. So The doors being locked was concerning for Mary.
0: Yeah, in the small town that we lived in, pretty much everybody would leave their doors unlocked at night. I mean, there was not really a lot of crime happening or anything, and so everybody felt safe with going to bed while their doors were just unlocked.
1: I know there's definitely a couple houses I lived in where even if we didn't leave the front door unlocked, there was always like a garage door or back door unlocked. And it just was not a big deal. You just never even locked it. So I think Mary definitely knew this. And that's when she was concerned.
0: Yeah, especially in 1912, where crime was even less frequent than what it is now. I'm sure that very, very few doors were locked. Absolutely
1: after realizing that she's not gonna be able to get in the house she decides to go and let the Morris chickens out and then she goes back to her house to call josiah's brother ross to come over because he had a spare key
0: wait so she went and let the chickens out before she decided to do anything
1: yes this part of the story is i think it's just so cute <laughs> it's also like i don't know if her priorities were straight because i probably would have called him first but she was like "Nah, i gotta get these chickens out but it's it's so sweet and I don't know how old Mary was. I should have looked. So I'm just expecting this like cute old lady.
0: Yeah, and that was really sweet. That the, I'm sure the chickens really appreciated it. I guess
1: <laughs> it is very nice, and this just goes to show what kind of community they lived in. Because I personally would never expect my neighbors to take care of my animals. So, not only does Mary let the chickens out and call Ross, she calls Ed Selly. So, Ed was an employee of Josiah's at his farm equipment store, and Mary called to see if maybe Josiah had been to the store yet. And also, she called because she wanted Ed to come over and take care of the rest of the Moore's livestock.
0: So, still worried about the animals, (laughs) yes. Not The possible situation that happened?
1: She's definitely worried about the situation because she's called Ross to come and unlock the door, but she's just also, like, making sure everything that needs to get done is getting done, I guess.
0: So why did she call the brother and not just go straight to calling, like, the police? Do you know?
1: Well, I assume just so she could... She probably didn't want to involve the police until she had, like, evidence that something was wrong, so she just thought maybe Ross could come and lock the door and see if... Maybe they're just sleeping through the knocks. I think she was just hoping for the best. I know you don't always wake up to loud sounds, so maybe she was hoping they were the same way.
0: (laughs) I don't wake up to anything.
1: (laughs) And I know a lot of people that do. So, I mean, they have a routine and they get up in the mornings, but every now and then, you know, people stay up late and they sleep in. And I think that's what she was hoping for. So... Ed tells Mary that Josiah has not been into the store, but he's like, I will come over and take care of the animals really quick, and I will be there shortly. And then he goes to the moors, takes care of their livestock, and then he returns back to the store. Shortly after he returns to the store, he receives a call from Josiah's brother, Ross, who is urgent, telling him to get the marshal and get back to the moor house as quickly as possible. So at this point, something's up.
0: This is the urgency that we needed. Yes. 20 minutes ago.
1: Ross used his key to open up the front door after he had knocked and walked around the house, trying to look in the window, see if anything was going on. Mary was with him and decided that she was going to wait on the porch while Ross went inside, which ultimately was probably one of the best decisions she's ever made. Um, Ross went inside and came across a horrific scene that probably scarred him for the rest of his life. So from the porch, Ross enters the parlor and he first noticed how dark it was inside. Every window that had curtains, the curtains were drawn shut. And even the windows that didn't have curtains for whatever reason had been covered with either blanket sheets or like clothing of the Moors, which is very odd.
0: Yeah, I've never just walked into a home that's had that on their windows occasionally when I was younger I mean we would put blankets up over the windows so that we could have like a spooky movie or something <laughs> that's what I
1: was just thinking I was like I've definitely done it when I'm watching a scary movie but this was 1912 they weren't popping in a dvd and watching a scary movie
0: no and it's definitely concerning probably when it's every window in the house yeah and it's also
1: odd that they had like clothing covering the windows so, Ross uh, turns to go into the guest bedroom that is attached to the parlor, and he can see, like, two bodies in the bed, but they're covered up, and he notices that all the bedcloths were stained dark, and at that point, he's like, this isn't good. I'm so out. That is when he, he walks back outside and tells Mary, you need to go call Ed. Well, he tells her to call the sheriff, but she calls Ed, who... Then brings the city marshal. So shortly after the phone call, city marshal Hank Horton arrives to the scene. And once he arrives, he and Ross enter the household. As Ross had already discovered, the two Stillinger sisters, Lena and Ina, were in fact deceased in the downstairs bedroom. As the men walked up the stairs, they could already see that there was going to be a similar scene they were coming into. In the first bedroom, which is... Immediately there as you come off the stairs was the bodies of the four more children and they were also laying in their beds and they also were covered up through that bedroom into the parents' bedroom. Josiah and Sarah's bodies were both found in their beds as well. Each victim had been struck in the head with an axe multiple times with Joe and Sarah being struck anywhere from 20 to 30 times to the point where they were unidentifiable.
0: So to be clear that is eight people that were all brutally murdered in the home and there was less than a 12-hour period for that to happen
1: yeah so we know that the moors and cylinder girls probably arrived back at the house by 10 o'clock at night and then by five in the morning when mary's up something was wrong we later come to find out that the murders likely occurred around midnight So please go to FireDeptCoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. Investigators were able to piece together a likely timeline of the murders, as well as note some of the odd and specific things that the perpetrator carried out. Around midnight, the perpetrator likely entered the Moore house through the unlocked back door, As I mentioned earlier, this was a small town with no significant crimes, so it was normal for people to leave their houses unlocked. There is some speculation that the murderer laid in wait in either the attic, which was attached to Josiah and Sarah's bedroom, or the root cellar until the family went to bed. I did read somewhere that cigarette butts were found in the attic, which they thought maybe could belong to the murderer. I personally do find it hard to believe that he was in the attic and waiting. If you go to the Villisca website, you can do a virtual tour of the house. Erica, I'm going to show you what I'm talking about. Okay, Erica, so here's the attic. As I said, it's adjacent to Sarah and Josiah's room and. There's no door. It's pretty open, and from Sarah and Josiah's bed, you can see basically the whole room. There's a few places here and there to hide, but I just I find it hard to believe that someone was laying in wait in there and they didn't see them or didn't check it before they went to bed.
0: Yeah, that attic looks really creepy, like, to the point where I would probably be dead bolting that and boarding it up so that nobody could really go in there. And maybe that opinion is just because I know the events of what happened in this home. Maybe back then it wasn't really something that they were as concerned about because, like we mentioned earlier, crimes were less frequent back then. So they maybe weren't necessarily living in fear that all of... that these brutal crimes could happen to them. Well, and
1: that's true. And I think everybody wants to feel safe in their home and they just assume, you know, there's not a murderer just hiding in there.
0: Yeah, I have an attic in my house and... I don't know the last time that it's been checked. There could be somebody living in there.
1: Yeah, so check your attics. As the men walked up the stairs, they could already see that this would be a similar scene. In both of the bedrooms upstairs lay the bodies of the Moore family, each found in their own bed, and they had each been struck in the head with an axe multiple times, with Josiah and Sarah struck anywhere from 20 to 30 times to the point where they were unidentifiable. So at some point in the night, the murderer entered the house with the axe in hand, and it was actually an axe that he'd picked up from the coal shed behind the house, so it was Josiah Moore's axe that he used to murder them with. The murderer used the oil lamps in the house for lighting, but had removed the chimneys and bent the wicks down. Presumably, this was to minimize the flame and the light that was emitting from the lamp so it wouldn't draw as much attention. According to investigators, the murderer walked past the downstairs bedroom and straight to Josiah and Sarah's room upstairs, where he hit Josiah and Sarah once, instantly killing them before moving on to his next victims. He then walked into the Moore children's bedroom and hit each of them in the head with the axe, killing them. There's no evidence that any of the Moore family had ever awoken during the crime, after he was finished upstairs, he moved downstairs to the spare bedroom where Lena and Ina Stillinger were sleeping. He first hit Ina, instantly killing her. And this is where we have our first and only sign that somebody maybe woke up during the struggle. Lena was also hit and killed, but they found that she was partway shifted down the bed Her nightgown had come up a little bit and she had injuries on her arm. It's likely that she woke up when her sister was struck and attempted to escape the bed and was unfortunately unsuccessful in doing so. I want to mention that there is no sign of sexual abuse on any of the victims. I have read in some articles that there were theories that Lena may have been sexually assaulted due to the position of her nightgown. But the coroner ultimately concluded that there was no sign of sexual assault. So this is already a really horrific crime. And I don't know if you remember, I talked about how the victims were struck multiple times. But the perpetrator hit each of the victims just enough to kill them. And then he went back. And he hit each of his victims more times with the axe. And as I mentioned, Sarah and Josiah were hit up to 30 times.
0: Wait, so he killed them and then made sure everybody in the house was dead but then circled back just to get his anger out even more I guess and this is some major signs of overkill and can really help point to the theory that it could have been somebody that the family knew
1: definitely especially since Sarah and Josiah were hit so many times and I read that Josiah had been hit the most I'm not sure how accurate it is because it was conflicting in different articles, but in some of them it said that other than Josiah, they were all hit with the flat side or the butt of the axe, and Josiah was actually hit with the sharp
0: end. So you can kind of conclude from that that Josiah maybe was the main target? That's that's the theory for sure. So do we know of any enemies that Josiah had? Or is that something that you want to get into? We will get there.
1: Put a pin in that and we'll come back to it. So... After the murderer was done, he actually covered up each of the victims' faces with either bedsheets or articles of clothing from around the house.
0: Which, that can kind of show signs of remorse. So, did he do the same thing for Josiah or for everybody else in the home?
1: It was for every person that he murdered, he covered up.
0: Huh. Okay.
1: And it was after the fact, like after he had struck them, he then covered up their faces. So, they were uncovered while he was hitting them. So part of the reason I think this story is so infamous is that there's a lot of really odd things that were found at the crime scene. I'm going to go through those. And I'm just going to go through all of them. And then we will go back and kind of unpack that. So at some point during the night, the murderer covered up every mirror and all the glass in the house with clothes, which is odd. Also, investigators found a Two pounds, some reports say four pounds, but I'm going to go with two. Slab of uncooked bacon that had come from the ice box in the house. It was wrapped in a towel and on the floor of the downstairs bedroom. Next to it was a piece of keychain that supposedly did not belong to the Moore or Stillinger family. The axe used in the crime had been propped up against the wall of that same downstairs bedroom. It appeared that he tried to wipe the blood off the axe, but was ultimately unsuccessful on the kitchen table was a pan of bloody water that he may have used to wash his hands in. And then next to that pan was a plate of uneaten food. Blood splatter and gouges in the ceilings above the beds left investigators to believe that whomever committed the crimes was left-handed. So that was a lot. Um, We're going to kind of go back to a couple of the things. First off, The bacon. That's one of the strangest ones that has caused a lot of controversy, and there's a lot of theories that have been thrown around as to why that would have been removed from the icebox and left on the floor of the bedroom. I personally kind of had a thought that maybe he was using it to ice his hands. I would imagine they would probably be pretty sore after all of that.
0: Yeah, I could see that being used. I mean, a lot of people nowadays will use, like, the frozen peas or some sort of frozen meat when they have... Black eyes, or yeah, some people
1: believe that the bacon was used as some type of sexual component. Um, there's no evidence to that, so I'm not gonna go too deep into it. But that is one of the theories. I'm gonna move on to the uneaten plate of food on the table. A lot of people take this to mean that you know he he clearly spent a lot of time in the house, and they think maybe he like prepared that food and sat there and then didn't eat it for whatever reason.
0: So he had enough time to get into the home between at least 10 p.m and we'll say 5 a.m yeah so a seven hour span to go into the home make food for himself and then kill eight people go back through take out some of his anger do something with this pack of bacon
1: he also and i don't know if you remember he covered up all the mirrors and any reflecting <laughs> glass. So he spent a lot of time in the home. The play of honey and food. I try to find more about it because, I mean. I know there's times where like I make a midnight snack and I don't eat it and I leave it there to clean up the next day. So sometimes I wonder if maybe that was from the girls or one of the kids or even Josiah or Sarah and they were just leaving it for the morning to clean up.
0: Yeah, that's totally possible that it's just something from the Moore family or even the Stillinger girls. Yeah,
1: that's where I lean to. But there is that sinister aspect that maybe after all this, he decided to make some food and spend more time, which is just horrible, but he's clearly got issues. And then another thing that was odd was the covered up mirrors. And I know since he covered up the faces and stuff, Erica, you mentioned something about remorse, and that could be part of the reason he covered up the mirrors. Do you have any other thoughts on that?
0: I would just say the remorse, like he felt shameful or embarrassed as to what he had done, and he kind of wanted to disassociate himself from the murders. That would kind of really explain the covered faces and the mirrors and the windows being covered so that it was dark in the house as well. Yeah,
1: The windows, I I kind of just attribute to the fact that he didn't want anyone seen in there.
0: Well, which is also very possible. Yeah, but
1: but it could be um, because they have reflective surfaces. I also know that there's some thoughts and beliefs that mirrors have some type of doorway to the afterlife. I don't know a lot about it, but I, I know enough to know that Some people are very superstitious about mirrors. And I wonder if he had some mental instabilities in his head, which clearly he did, if he had a reason for covering them up that we wouldn't even
0: understand. Yeah, I mean, that's totally possible. There's the psychological explanations. And then there's some of those more mysterious and superstitious type of explanations.
1: Well, what we do know is all that stuff was in there. And he had left sometime before 5am and he locked the doors behind him.
0: One of the things that I have a question about, and we saw this in the Osborne family case from Fort Wayne, where it's another attacker that shows up at the home to murder multiple people and doesn't bring their own weapon.
1: I know. And I just, that's so crazy to me because you're thinking about it enough that you're going to go into this home and commit this crime, but you're not preparing enough to bring a weapon and i just my mind has a hard time wrapping around that idea
0: part of me wonders if maybe there it was some sort of just rage kill maybe it was somebody that had been drinking and they blacked out and just immediately went to this home to take some sort of buried anger out on josiah and his family and so he didn't really have the time to prepare from the point where he was drinking until the point where he arrived at the home
1: well and you know back in 1912 living on a farm I'm sure most of them had axes so maybe he just he figured one would be there and he was correct I mean he had to go into the shed to get it but if he was hiding and laying in wait maybe he was watching them and then saw the axe and just acted out whatever fantasies he was thinking about maybe it wasn't even supposed to be a murder maybe he was just kind of peeping and being creepy And then he just snapped. Another thing I find really odd about this is that none of them, except for Lena, seem to wake up. And I, as morbid as this is about to sound, I can imagine hitting someone in the head with an axe would be pretty loud.
0: Can't really imagine, I guess, how nobody woke up to that. Even I'm a heavy sleeper and kind of feel like maybe I would wake up to something like that if the person next to me was being brutally murdered. It's kind of wild. And I even read an article where they were talking
1: about in 1912, too, there wasn't as much sound. There weren't a lot of cars. Like now, if you hear loud sounds outside, it's kind of normal. But back then in this small town, it would have been pretty quiet. So I feel like they wouldn't be used to sounds as much as someone say today were, which kind of makes me wonder if they were possibly drugged somehow. I don't know that they were doing talk screens and stuff back then, I could not find anything on it. But it seems odd to me that none of them woke up.
0: Yeah, this might be really, really far fetched. But was there any food or anything at the children's thing that was going on at the church? That's actually something I thought about.
1: And you know, they're coming up, there will be a suspect I talk about. And I'm going to kind of tie it back. So put a pin in that one too. And we will come back to it. So News of the horrific slayings traveled quickly through this community. As we said, there's a lot of talk. It was small. Everybody knew what was going on. And within a couple of hours, hundreds of locals had made their way to the crime scene because they wanted to see what was going on and get a look for themselves. And law enforcement lost control of it. And hundreds of people ended up walking through the house. Oh, no you know, just really ruining any evidence that could be in there. And it was even reported that one of the men walking through took a piece of Josiah's skull with him as some type of horrible souvenir. Please tell me that that person was very quickly added to the suspect list. I have no idea. Nothing else was reported on it. Just some rumor. I assume it was a rumor that someone said, you know, hey, I, um, or they are bragging, I grabbed a piece of this and it spread and that's how it got... Reported. That's just crazy. Law enforcement just, they quickly lost control and hundreds of people were in there. And they weren't able to get control back until noon where they set up barricades and were able to get enough people down there, enough enforcement to keep the locals out of the house. It's all just really sad that if you see some type of crime scene, don't mess with it. Call the cops immediately
0: and just leave it alone. And by all means, don't take a piece of somebody that's horrible. That's... I, I can't wrap my head around what kind of person would do that.
1: This murder was a massive news break and it quickly became infamous and even replaced the front page stories of the Titanic sinking, which had just happened a couple months prior. That's how big this had come. And they held funeral services in the town square for them and thousands of people were in attendance. This story was huge and everyone was just taken by it because they didn't understand how someone could ask eight people and then leave and just not even get caught. And it led to a lot of rumors and suspicions and talk as to who committed these crimes. And I'm going to get into some of the suspects. But before I do, I'm going to let you know that there were a ton of them. And I'm not going to go through all of them. Feel free to look them up. But I'm going to go through the ones that... I thought were the most relevant, or it was relevant enough to be told whether or not they most likely committed it. So the first one I'm going to start out with is Frank F. Jones. Frank Jones was a longtime Villisca resident, and he actually went on to be an Iowa State Senator. He had strong ties in the community, and he was known for having power and control. Along with becoming a senator, he ran his own farm equipment business and founded the Villisca National Bank. Rumors quickly spread that he may have something to do with the murders because Josiah had actually worked for Frank for years until he decided to leave Frank's company and start his own farm equipment company. And he even took a contract with the John Deere franchise with him. And it cost
0: Frank a lot of business. I could see that being a reason to maybe not murder an entire family, but to be angry with somebody. Yeah. And,
1: you know, nowadays you can't do that. But back then, I guess there weren't any like non-compete causes or stuff like that. And he just went off on his own. And he, like I said, he took a lot of business. And Frank took a significant blow because of that. So, you know, and this alone maybe wasn't enough to anger him into murder, but There were also rumors going around that Josiah was having an affair with Frank's daughter-in-law, Donna. And people often reported on how much these two men hated each other, and they wouldn't even walk on the same side of the street. If they were passing each other, one would go to the other side.
0: That seems a bit extreme.
1: Oh yeah, and the hatred ran deep, and there was no shortage of people reporting how much they disliked each other. A detective involved in finding the murderer of the Villisca killings was Detective Wilkerson of the Burns Detective Agency. He openly accused Frank, and he believed he was the mastermind behind this crime, although he doesn't believe that Frank committed the crimes himself. He thinks that Frank and his son Albert actually hired a man to carry out the killings, which leads us to our next suspect. William Mansfield, his nickname was Blackie, which is how I'm going to refer to him as was from Blue Island, Illinois, and he was a prime suspect of Detective Wilkerson. Wilkerson claims that Blackie was, quote, a cocaine fiend and serial killer, end quote. Along with the Velisca murders, Wilkerson accused Blackie of being responsible for the murders of his wife, child, and father and mother-in-law, who had also been murdered with an axe in Blue Island on July 5th, 1945.
0: That's a little weird that your family is murdered with an axe and then the new town that you're living in also has a family murdered with an axe.
1: Well, and it's crazy, but for whatever reason around this time, there were a lot of axe murders, a strangely large amount. So Wilkerson, Detective Wilkerson, actually tried to tie Blackie to similar axe murders that happened in Kansas, Colorado, and some other ones that occurred near and around the time of the Velisca murders. It's actually kind of a rabbit hole once you start digging into the Axe murders occurring in this area around this time, and there's a lot of them, and many believe that one person or a serial killer was responsible for at least a handful of them. As for Blackie, the murders um, were suspiciously similar in the case of the Velisca, the ones with his family, the ones that happened in Kansas and Colorado as well. In each of the murders, the mirrors in the homes were covered. A lamp with a chimney removed sat at the end of the victim's beds. And a pan or bowl was used to wash the bloody hands of the murderers. Also in each of the crimes, and this happened in Villisca as well that I didn't mention, there were no fingerprints found. And Wilkerson believed that it was because the perpetrator was wearing gloves. I think he liked to assume they are wearing gloves because... Blackie actually had his fingerprints on file in a federal military prison. So, workers say that this is why he wore gloves, specifically because he knew that they could trace back the fingerprints.
0: And so, the theory that the perpetrator was wearing gloves really just supported his theory that Blackie did it.
1: Yes, it all went together nicely for him. Wilkerson claimed that he could place Blackie in each of these locations on the night of each murder. And in 1916, he was arrested for the Velisca murders, but was later released for lack of evidence in an alibi that checked out for the night of the Velisca murders. There was a record of a payroll that proved he was in Illinois the night of the Velisca murders, and that was enough for him to be cleared. Conflictingly, though, a man claimed to have witnessed Blackie boarding a train in Clarinda, Iowa, which was about 20 minutes from Villisca, the morning of the murders. But either way, the payroll took precedence, I guess, and he was released, although rumors continued to spread. And a lot of people believe that Frank Jones used his power to doctor the payrolls and to clear Blackie's name and his name because people were believing that he hired Blackie. Hmm. It was never proven that he doctored anything, though. So in the eyes of the law, I guess, you can't be in two places at once. So
0: that seems very accurate.
1: So I'm going to move on to our next suspect, Henry Lee Moore. Wait, Moore? Yes. There's no relation, though, between him and the family.
0: Okay. This suspect
1: has had his fair share of reports and articles written about him. I'm not going to dive in too deep because I don't genuinely see the connection that people who believe he did it connect him to Velisca and some of the other axe crimes as well. Basically, in May of 1913, a federal officer, M.W. McClaffery, announced that he believed Henry to be responsible for Velisca as well as 22 other axe murders that had been committed in and around the Midwest. So, Earlier, when I said there were a surprising amount of them, there were at least 22.
0: Why was that so popular in 1912? (laughs) I don't know.
1: And it's not just 1912, it's like the years surrounding it, too. But it's not something you hear about. Like, I guess I've not heard about like some axe craze in the early 1900s. The reason Henry came into view. As a suspect of Velisca was because he was convicted of murdering his mother and grandmother with an axe in Columbia, Missouri, a few months after Velisca murders. But here is why I don't believe in the connection of him being a serial killer. in Erica, you can, after I tell you, I think you'll probably agree with me, but... Even though Henry used an axe to murder them, he murdered his mother and grandma for financial gain. His father and two of his brothers were already deceased by the times of the murder, and his remaining brother was not living in the area, so he would have been the beneficiary of the two women from insurance, as well as it was rumored that he would likely get the deed to their house.
0: So that seems more like a personal reason to commit that crime, whereas I'm not really seen one and i don't know if you just haven't gotten into it yet but i don't see a connection to the family in the Velisca home
1: and no um actually it's not that i just haven't gotten into it there isn't one you know and that's a big reason why i don't see how i mean i i can believe that there is a serial killer who was killing people with axes like i can believe that i just don't think it was henry because he had a motive for killing his his family i guess
0: also, if there was a serial killer going around killing people with an axe, you would kind of think that they would just have an axe of their own instead of just assuming that each home that they're going to go to has an axe for them to use.
1: Yeah, well, I don't I don't actually know how many of the other cases. I don't know that they had an axe at the house that was used or if the perpetrator brought one. Villisca um, specifically, we know they came in and took the axe that was already Josiah Moore's that's something I think you can get into a whole probably book about is sitting there and hammering out the details and all the axe murders that were happening around this time because there were some similar details in them. I think a lot of people in the community wanted to believe that the person responsible for the Velisca murders was a transient and I don't believe they wanted to think somebody in their community was capable of such a horrific crime and as I mentioned earlier the railroads were very popular and frequented at this time and a lot of popular theories involved men who were just passing through town to be the perpetrator. Okay, so I am going to move on to the final suspect I'm going to talk about. And for me, this one fits the most. His name was Reverend Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly. Sometimes it's just George Jacqueline Kelly. It goes both ways. I'm just going to call him Kelly for the purpose of this story. So Kelly was a traveling preacher at the time of the Velisca murders, and he was known for being a little off-putting. In his past, he had a history of mental issues and even spent time in a mental hospital, and he'd actually already gotten into some trouble because he was known as a peeping Tom and sent obscene material through the mail to a young woman who he was interviewing to be his secretary. Kelly was in Villisca the night of the murders, and he actually attended the same Children's Day services that the Moores and Stillingers
0: attended. Wait, so is this the reason that you told me to put a pin in the theory that the Moore and Stillinger family was possibly drugged at the... This is
1: exactly why I told you to put a pin in it. Um, it proves that he had access to them the night of the murders. and it. And I don't have any evidence to back this up, but I do wonder if maybe he put something in some snacks or drinks
0: or... Which could also kind of go with it since the only person that woke up was somebody from the Stillinger family. And if he didn't know that the two Stillinger girls were staying at the Moore's household, then it would make sense that Lena woke up when her sister was hit next to her. And that's a really good point.
1: A lot of people, what they do agree on is this could be his way into finding out where they lived. He could have followed them home easily. Like I said, they walked home was only a few blocks away. We do know Kelly left Velisca around 5.30 in the morning, on the morning that the bodies were discovered. An elderly couple came forward and told investigators that they had met Kelly at the train station the morning around 5.19 a.m. is what they said, and that Kelly said that, quote, gruesome murders and eight dead souls, quote, were left back in Velisca. And if this is true... He would have known about the murders before anybody else because the bodies weren't discovered until well after 7 a.m.
0: And you said that this was an elderly couple that came forward? Yes. So it seems unlikely to me that an elderly couple is making up some sort of story that a random man on the train told them.
1: Yeah, and it was also reported that Kelly had brought bloody clothes into a dry cleaner soon after the murders. And apparently, Kelly returned back to Villisca a week after the crimes had happened and tried to get law enforcement to allow him into the house by posing as a Scotland
0: Yard detective. What was his plan for going into the home? I have no idea. I didn't know if like, they ended up discovering if he admitted to why he was trying to pose as somebody else and break into the home.
1: I think he just wanted to go back if he was a murderer or see the crimes. He was obsessed with the murders and he actually wrote letters about them to investigators and family members of the victims
0: that kind of plays into the fact that that kind of supports the theory that he could have been the one that did it yeah that's not a normal thing to do out of all of the suspects that you've mentioned to me he is definitely the one that i see the most likely yeah and the thing is as far as we know, he didn't
1: even know the Moores or Stillingers before that day of the program, where I think it's supposed that he met them at the Children's Day programs. So he would have no reason to be writing to them about the murders. I mean, I can see it if he was like a family friend, but there's no reports of that.
0: Also, if it is him and he is, like you said, a traveling reverend, that could really support the theory that maybe there was a serial killer going around and since he's already traveling, it kind of ties back in with our Israel Keys guy who was known to travel a lot for work and he became known for all of the murders that he committed.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, it's a a better way to kind of disguise the crimes that you've possibly done because you're not necessarily tied to them. Another thing that I thought was pretty incriminating was that Kelly was left-handed. And if you remember earlier, I mentioned that due to the crime scene, investigators determined that the perpetrator was likely
0: left-handed. And as we all know, there's not nearly as many left-handed people as there are right-handed. That's true. It kind of does just reiterate the fact that it could have been him. Yeah, and you know, there's
1: still a significant number of left-handed people, but it's just another thing amongst other things that makes you wonder. Some people argue that they don't think he could have committed them because he was a pretty small guy. He was around 5'2", about 120 pounds. And they say that they don't think the axe would have hit the ceiling to make the gouge marks. But I'm thinking for how long axes typically are and how short the ceilings, especially in upstairs bedrooms are and houses back then, I think he easily could have made them. And if you look at the virtual tour, there's actually parts of the ceiling that are slanted. So that's why you had me reach my arms up
0: the other day to see why I could reach the
1: ceiling. Erica is, how tall are you? I'm five foot one. And her with her arms straight in the air and then thinking about adding an axe on there, I think she easily could have hit the ceiling. So that was my interpretation of it. (laughs) But in 1917, Kelly was interrogated for the Veliska murders and he actually signed a confession. I'm going to read you a little bit of it. He says, quote, I killed the children upstairs first and the children downstairs last. I knew God wanted me to do it this way. Slay utterly came to my mind and I picked up the axe, went into the house and killed them. End quote. That sounds pretty damning. It's, yes, and creepy. And, you know, a lot of reports about the confessions, he says God was telling him to commit these murders.
0: Don't really know that... God tells people to murder.
1: But far be it for me to know what God's talking about, I
0: right?
1: Or <laughs> telling people to do. I guess you know? I wasn't
0: there for that conversation. For me
1: personally, I think it kinda goes with his um, mental illnesses that he thinks I guess I would just say a higher power is telling him to murder eight people with an axe, including children. However, he was never convicted for the crimes. He actually recanted his confession. And at the trial, the older couple changed their story. And I I couldn't find any articles on the detail on what parts of the story changed, which makes me, I guess, just wonder what they
0: changed because. So, wait, the older couple from the train station changed their story. Yes. But that I don't just, know to
1: what. That doesn't make any sense to me. And yeah, I don't know why. Like, I have a lot of follow up questions for that. And unfortunately, no answers for you guys. But in the end, after two trials, Kelly was acquitted and set free. And I I just personally believe he did it. I can see Frank Jones as well, maybe because he had motive. There were a couple, like it said, there were a lot of theories and on people who committed them and a lot of them, um, I think they just started from rumors and they didn't have any ground to go with them. But I don't know. who. What do you think?
0: Oh, out of all of that, I definitely think that the Reverend did it.
1: I think he sounds the most damning for sure. Maybe he didn't have a specific motive, but I don't know how much of a motive you need if you have the mindset to kill eight people, six children with an axe. You know what I mean? And we know he had mental illnesses, Who knows? Nobody's ever been convicted for the Veliska Axe murders, and over 100 years later, this case remains unsolved. The house has since been bought and returned to its original conditions. It's actually open for the public for tours as well as paranormal investigations. If you're interested in ghost investigations, I recommend watching the Ghost Adventures episode on it. They give you a good insight. I think even besides the ghost stuff, seeing the house and them interact and talk, it's really interesting. And there are so many books and documentaries and even some movies based on this axe murder. And to this day, we just don't know what happened. Email us at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com for questions or to suggest cases that you would like us to cover. Also check out our Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast and our Instagram at Crime